The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. to get this show out before the late afternoon, early evening here on the Pacific Coast, so that's something, isn't it? Bouncing around, midday, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever we got, we'll get you a show. Fear not, friends and confidants. It is Dan Vespers. It is Fantasy NBA Today. It is, for some reason, a pair of words that I like to say on this Wednesday edition. Welcome to the show, everybody. We are in our slightly renamed postmortem edition because it's just not a good name for anything right now. This is the season so far, time of year at Hoop Ball. So we're following suit. And this is day three. If you missed the first two days, we did the Lakers on Monday, the Clippers yesterday. And today we will continue our tour of the Pacific Division with the Phoenix Suns. So that'll be coming up here in just a matter of moments. I wanted to address a reply I got on Twitter to yesterday's show. This is Kieran, who made a really good note that you kind of need to add, and let me quickly go back to what we had talked about on yesterday's podcast. I got into about a five, six-minute dissection of why these measures that have been put in place in in many places, not all, but many spots in the United States, are still taking so long to see the effects. And after doing a little bit of research, again, I'm going to try to pare down yesterday's discussion into about one minute today, just to kind of, this is like the previously on Fantasy NBA Today segment. Possible I'd like to get Kiefer Sutherland to do the voiceover for it. Come on, that was the best previously on 24. Previously on Fantasy NBA Today... The assessment really is that start to finish, COVID-19, the coronavirus, is taking about 23 days in people. Day zero is exposure. Day five is first symptom. Day 12 or 13 is potential hospitalization. This, by the way, is for cases that end up in the hospital, I guess I should mention, because other ones might be done by about this point. So day 15 through 19, if you don't require any additional work. Uh, And if you're in the hospital, it sounds like you're... Well, let me go back and do this again. I got sidetracked. So five for incubation. Day five, you got your symptom. Day 12 or 13, you're potentially admitted to the hospital. If you don't need the hospitalization, you're probably better by about day 17. If you do... You are either better or, unfortunately, as we're seeing now in over 14,000 cases, not going to get better, on about day 23. Day 21, 22, maybe you get discharged if, unfortunately, you're in the other direction. That's about 23 days. On average, about 23 days from exposure to end of the curve. So what we talked about on yesterday's podcast before diving into the Clippers was... Number one, why is it that we've been in California? Statewide lockdown was on March 19th. So we're on day 20 right now of the full state lockdown, basically the first in the nation on that front to go statewide. There were cities that bested us. And in fact, Northern California did it three days sooner. They started on the 16th. A lot of Northern California counties 
So they're now uh, 23 days out, which is exactly the number we just started talking about. The reason I brought it up on yesterday's podcast is because I felt like we all needed something to hold on to, something tangible, a number, something to not necessarily look forward to because all of this is bad news, but something to say, hey, this is when we can start paying attention. Because for the first 23 days, effectively, you guys should just assume it's going to get worse. And worse and worse and worse. After everybody gets separated. Presumably, after that 23rd day, you start to see a point at which the deaths hopefully would come down off the peak number. Hospitalizations would have already actually started to come down a little bit before then. Because there's this notion of kind of lagging indicators. Everything that we're doing on this front, everything, all the stats you're seeing out there are lagging indicators. Tests are taken about two weeks after day zero. You know, we're getting test results on around day 14. So that lags two weeks from anything that's been done, which is you should start to see the number of cases start to come down by, well, around now. So two to three weeks is the lag on on tests, two weeks on tests, maybe three weeks on hospitalizations, four weeks on deaths. So everything that we're doing, or we did three weeks ago in California, you have that lagging indicator. So by the end of this week, you should probably see the number of hospitalizations start to level off. By next week, you should see the number of deaths start to level off, and then you can run that to every other spot. A point that was brought up on Twitter uh, by Karen that I started to talk about and then realized it was a weird place to jump in on today's show is that there's also that sort of like a 1B kind of wave. That is, everybody put these measures into effect in California. We're using this as the example because it was first and because I live here, so I've been paying closest attention and you can just apply it to whatever you've got going on in your home state, is that once quarantined, once everybody was told to shelter in place, if there were any people in a particular household or home unit that had been exposed or were incubating, then their whole group, their roommates or family or whoever they live with, is probably going to start a new day zero about five days later. So just for the sake of our own mental well-being, even though you will start to see things slow down, because look, let's be honest, you know, the fact that people say hypothetically someone in our household had it, thank God we don't, if they were shut down, the rest of uh, this household over here could still be infected over the next week or so. Now, this is true, and so you have to assume that things are not just going to slam to a screeching halt at day 23, because there's still going to be kind of lagging stragglers here that were infected by businesses that didn't shut down quickly, uh, infections on the home front, little things like that that continue to happen. But overall, if you eliminate 90% of human-to-human contact and the other 10% is just people with their roommates or family, that's still going to drastically cut down on the numbers. So there will be like a, a little baby, I don't know, call it a baby bump, that's a different thing altogether, but a very small size uh, dangling part of this curve that just has to do with even once you put a quarantine in place, some people are going to have to see one another. I am here with my wife and kids. You guys, I'm sure listening, have people you just live with 
where once you were told to shelter in place, it's not like you could all just go to separate rooms and stay there for two weeks. So, Kieran, good point indeed. However, we are still looking for the large majority of transmissions to come down by day 23. Or the numbers, I should say. These lagging indicators should start to, to come back down after day 23. So, hopefully, by the time we do a podcast on uh, next Monday, we'll be starting to look at better news. Next week should be... You start to see those lagging... The deaths might not, by the way. Remember... That's about a four-week lag time. You're not even, you know, you don't get the, the news immediately. Two, three days after it happens, you might even hear about a death that gets reported and linked to uh, a COVID deal. So don't look for that one first. First thing you should be looking at are positive tests. That number should come down. Really, that number should be coming down already or leveling off at least already. Next week, I think you might even start to see the hospitalizations start to come down on a per-day basis. Last thought on this topic before I dive into the Suns, because I didn't want to spend that much time on COVID on today's show. Uh, The last idea here is just that there's an equilibrium to this as well. And we mentioned this on a previous show. Even when the number of hospitalizations starts to come down, it's still likely going to be happening faster than people are recovering because you have to compare it to when those people got into the hospital. So let's say that uh, last week, a week ago, which would have been April 1st from today, there were 100 people that were going into the hospital. Those 100 people are going to take about 10 to 14 days to recover. So a week from today, while the peak may have come down, if those 100 people are leaving the hospital, but the Peak number, let's say the peak number was like 800 hospitalizations in a day. I mean, we're going big numbers. I don't, I don't know what the hell the, the reality is on that front. And that comes back down from 800 to 700. While that's still good news on the rate of hospitalizations, the equilibrium is still pointing very hard to the more coming in than going out. And that's why people are all, uh, our governor, and I'm sure wherever you guys might be, will be looking at the same thing. The fourth week after the shutdown is the big hospital peak week. So that's next week. That's when everybody's looking at it. And then after that, you start to see basically people that were going into the hospital on the, like around the 25th. That's a lot of people. They'll start to be released faster than people are coming in. That's the week after that. And then the week after that, it just gets better and better. So, Uh, There's that equilibrium point. Happy to talk about this on Twitter if anybody wants to. It just has to do with, it's sort of a weird notion because you're comparing, even if the number of admissions is coming down, which is good news, the hospital is still getting more people on a base-to-base, on a day-to-day basis. The way you can think about it, and I, I think a lot of you understand what I'm saying already, but just to simplify it, think about taking a big cup and poking a small hole in the bottom. The small hole in the bottom is people leaving the hospital. That's the rate at which people are either recovering or not recovering. Either way, those people are out. As you pour water into that cup, if you pour at the same speed that water is coming out, perfect equilibrium. If you start to increase the speed, the water starts to fill up in the cup faster than it can leave. Now, you could pour really fast and be filling that cup all the way to the top. You could actually slow down from that point 
So it's getting better. You're pouring less liquid per second, but it could still be more than what's coming out of the cup, which means you're still filling the cup. I don't know if that helped. That might have made it worse. Anyway, I still hope that all of this discussion is helpful for you guys. It is for me. I'm able to feel better for a couple of reasons. Number one, the fact that we put these measures in place in California so early is really refreshing because we're now starting to get close to sort of this big moment. And if everybody can just hold it together here for another two weeks, probably, you'll start to see things improve. And then you have a nice argument coming from the governor or your mayor, whoever it might be, to say, hey, look, hang on for another week or two, and we can really put a lid on this thing. Of course, I've now listed four more weeks, and I think we all assume that the entire month of April is lost to this as well. But the way things are looking right now, I mean, we could we could be starting to see a pretty calm California by May. But it can't be all sunshine and rainbows. Unfortunately, a lot of places just put into effect a bunch of these orders, so you guys are looking at a long way yet before even the apex hits. And that means, selfishly, the rest of us are going to have to wait on you. Pretty annoyed with places that just sat on it. Looking at you! You know who you are governors that are definitely not listening to this podcast that waited too damn long to do anything. And certainly the people listening to the show, you guys know where you're at and you know who I'm pissed at. The whole country just went into a damn quarantine four weeks ago or three weeks ago, same time as California, we'd be, we'd actually be awfully close to getting a handle on this thing. And it just, nobody wanted to admit it. Then it dragged out and here we are. The Phoenix Suns is our... Team du jour here on this April the 8th edition of Fantasy NBA Today. We've had some fun with the first two. Lakers were arguably the easiest team in the entire NBA to handicap. Clippers had a little bit more going on, and Phoenix had a lot going on. This will be a fun one. Really excited to dive into this one. Uh, Phoenix had uh, three players inside the top 50, five players inside the top 100 on the year, and a couple others that teased us with brief forays into fantasy value, but largely were not worth using for the great majority of the season. The player owned at the greatest clip on the Phoenix Suns was actually their second highest ranked guy, and that was Devin Booker, but we'll just work our way from the top down. DeAndre Ayton was number 21 in 9-cat this year, played in only 30 games, however, averaging 19 points, 12 rebounds, 2 assists, 0.7 steals, 1.7 blocks, 55% from the field, and 77 at the free throw line. Pretty good big man stat set. The very reassuring part of all this is that he was able to get his minutes up to 33, averaging 19 points, 12 rebounds. Those are both good numbers, and then he did it on solid percentages. I'm looking at, with Aiton, a couple of things. Number one, the fact that he ended up with a suspension and then additional ankle stuff really crushed his season. Really crushed his season. I mean, you know, 21 is great on a per-game basis. That's not that far from where he was drafted, but 30 games is mind-bogglingly bad. No one wanted any number remotely close to that. He did good stuff, and I think it's a pretty reasonable assessment to say, look, this this is probably where he's going to be. 
His ADP was around 25, so just a little bit in front of that. You wonder, would that have stuck all season long? Would he have come back a little bit? It's sort of hard to know. As his volume increased this year, his field goal percent came down from 58.5 last year to 55 this season. Free throw percent was up from 75 to 77. Scoring, rebounding, both up, blocks way up season over season. That was a really big deal for him. He's only playing about two and a half minutes more this year, but his blocks nearly doubled. And I would argue, even more than the 12 rebounds a game, the block jump was probably the biggest single reason that his fantasy value spiked higher. He seems like, in looking at Aiton's game, someone that could probably continue to improve his free throw shooting. Doesn't take that many, kind of surprising. Doesn't take any three-pointers, so the field goal percent should, at least for the time being, remain solid in the mid-50s, I would assume. So he feels like a pretty good bet to go in this same ballpark next year. I don't know that you can say definitively, hey, this guy has injury issues. He played in 71 games last year. That's not bad. I mean, you'd like to see rookies play in pretty much all their games, just sort of before there's any body breakdown. Uh, But he's got a really nice fantasy game. And even though he was pushed at times by Aaron Baines for playing time, Baines ended up sitting out for long stretches as the Suns just kind of said, look, we're going to... We're going to play our young guys, even if it means we lose a game or two here and there. They sort of got the right plan. Uh, It was nice to see the blocks up high over an entire season. Do we think 1.7 can stick? I don't know. I'm going to say this is probably better than expected for him. And so when you weigh it all together, I would call this a slight overperformance on a per-game basis, and then obviously a massive underperformance on the actual games played radar. I mean, he missed half of their games to this point. More. I think the Suns had played 65 games to this point in the season. Devin Booker, second highest ranked player on the Suns this year at number 33. 26 points, 4 rebounds, 6.6 assists, 2 three-pointers, 1 combined steal and block. Not great. 49% from the field. Wow. 91.5% of the free throw line on a high volume. The turnovers were high, but what we saw this year from Booker was better efficiency. And the hope was that bringing in someone like Ricky Rubio would create that avenue for him. The problem with a guy like Devin Booker is that despite the fact, I mean, this is a guy that a couple years ago, my thought was, geez, like his field goal percent, it was was tanking teams. He's taking 19, 20 shots and shooting 43%. His field goal percent has been an incredible leap over the last couple of years. From 43 two seasons back, 46.7 last year, and then 48.7 this season. Scoring is the same last year to this year, which is good. His volume was down but his scoring was the same, so his efficiency got better. But you're always looking at a couple key things with Booker. Number one, his assist-to-turnover ratio is generally pretty bad. He turns the ball over four times a game, has six-and-change assists. You like the assist number, but you don't like what it takes to get there. Rubio did help in some small way. Turnovers were down just a little bit year over year. But overall, he just the decision making just needs to be a little bit better with him. If you're not 
if you're going to have four turnovers per ball game, you have to be uh, a bigger factor. You have to be like the other guys with four turnovers a game right now, which is, at this point, uh, Trey Young, who's at nine and change assists, James Harden, who's just in everything, Russell Westbrook, who, honestly, at this point, he doesn't have a whole lot on Booker, but steals, rebounds, things like that. He's able to overcome Luka Doncic, LeBron James. Those are the guys that turn the ball over more than Devin Booker. And the guys right behind him, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Ben Simmons. And then you get to Zach Levine, who's a guy that kind of reminds you of Devin Booker in a certain, in a few ways, just in terms of kind of impact on the court. So if you're going to turn the ball over four times a game, you've got to be someone doing what LeBron, Luka, Harden, these types of guys are doing. And that, to me, is what is probably always going to hold Booker back from a fantasy standpoint. Not that he's not going to have a good season, because to say 33 is a letdown is untrue. But he's almost always going to be overdrafted in nine-category leagues because people just don't care about the guy who turns the ball over a crap ton of times. I don't think you can get away with a one-and-a-half-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio when you're that kind of a usage guy. It just has to be better. James Harden can get away with it because he's scoring 34 points a game and taking 12 free throws. Honest to goodness, I don't think Russell Westbrook should be allowed to get away with it. That's too many turnovers for him. Luka can do it because look at what he did. LeBron can do it. Because he had 10.5 assists and 8 rebounds a game. And 1.7 combined defensive stats. Harden has 2.6 combined defensive stats. So these guys, these are guys doing a thing that Booker's not doing. Now Westbrook has his own problems because while the free throw percent did get a lot better this year, it's still uh, a net negative. Same with Luka. But it's hard, man. It's hard in 9-cat to basically be a punt turnover guy. So let's break it all down on the Booker standpoint. Number one, his field goal percent was so much higher than anything I think any of us could have ever thought. 49%? I don't know a single person that predicted that type of massive leap. But I think some of that has to do with more talent around him, namely Kelly Oubre for a whole year, Ricky Rubio for the whole year. Uh, so that's a big deal. That's a, big, that's a really nice thing for Booker. And without that big field goal percent jump, He's probably looking more at a top 50 type season right now instead of top 35. The other stuff, I don't really see changing all that much for him. I mean, he had an opportunity this year to take almost as many shots as he wanted, and it was fewer than last season. Aiden's only going to continue to do more. Uh, Ubre, he's locked into his role with this team. The, you know, Booker at 18 shots a game is probably about where they want him. When he was taking 22 to 25 shots a game in those stretches last year and scoring 50, 60 points a night, still weren't winning. So they prefer him to dial it back just a little bit to keep that really nice efficiency going. And at the end of the day, as much as this season was by all accounts a success from an efficiency angle, he's always going to be overdrafted in nine category leagues because of the high turnovers people ignore because of the complete lack of defensive stats people ignore you know another thing i like to look at is you look at the top rankings who are the guys really inside the top 40 that don't really do anything on defense how do they get there without defensive stats 
There's almost no one in the top goodness. I don't know how far you got to go down before you get to someone who's putting Chris Middleton. There you go. I had to scan it on the run. Trey Young is actually relatively close because he doesn't block any shots at all. He's at 1.1 steals, Trey Young is, and 0.1 blocks. So still at 1.2 combined, but that's pretty low. Dame is at 1.4, and he's a first-round guy. But, I mean, Dame also is at 2.9 turnovers. So that's another, and four three-pointers a game and eight assists per game. So I don't even, it's not even worth bringing up. Middleton is kind of your first guy that didn't really do anything on the defensive side. His stat set, by the way, not that far off from Devin Booker's this year. Middleton, 21 points, two and a half three-pointers, six rebounds, four assists, one combined defensive stat, 0.9 and 0.1. Uh, Middleton had 50% from the field and 91 at the free throw line with only two turnovers a game. And then there's Booker, 10 spots behind him, despite averaging five additional points, two and a half more assists, those extra two turnovers a game, there's your drop-off. And those are kind of the only two guys in the upper-ish echelon that aren't doing almost anything on the defensive side, that are at one defensive stat or less. It's hard, by the way. Danilo Gallinari at 51 is at .8 combined. Kevin Love was at .9. He's at 56 on the rankings. There's not that many guys that average one or less. Good or bad in fantasy. They just don't really exist, so it's hard to be that little of an impact guy. Malcolm Brogdon, .9. Duncan Robinson, .7. We're moving pretty far down the charts now, people. Boyan Bogdanovich, .6. He's your leader in the clubhouse and doing the least amount of stuff on defense. So there you go. And therein lies some of my issue with Devin Booker. He's going to continue to get rammed down my throat every year. People are going to tell me that I'm underdrafting him. He's going to get off to a hot start like he did this year, and everybody's going to try to slam it in my face. And then he's going to settle back in. Now, one thing I will mention in his favor before we move on to Kelly Oubre is that Booker played in 62 games. Played in most of the team's games this year. So by totals, he was actually better than 33. So kudos to Booker on that front. He's number 13 by totals thanks to his first really truly durable season since his sophomore year. After two years that Phoenix kind of pulled the plug on him, they were letting him play. So that was cool. And you can always look at that part of the narrative with the team. Is a team trying to make the playoffs... And then you can try to gauge, hey, is a guy going to play through some of the nagging stuff? And Booker did this year. So at least you had that. Really nice season for Kelly Oubre Jr. He's number 47 in nine cat, 19 points, two threes, six and a half rebounds, not much in the way of assists, two combined defensive stats, 1.3 and 0. 0.7, 45% from the field, 78 at the free throw line, and just one and a half turnovers. He was a big hoop ball guy, and he delivered in a big way prior to tearing his meniscus and missing the end of this whatever season you want to call it right now. I don't see much of a reason why his role should change. He's a very good rebounding wing, so that was a kind of a cool bonus to his stuff. 
He's been able to get enough usage on this club as the third option, and with DeAndre Ayton missing a lot of time, that helped him. I think you might see Ubre slightly overdrafted next year after having a really nice season. If Phoenix is healthy, he takes, I don't want to call it a back seat because he's been very good and he's had his shot attempts even when DeAndre Ayton was around, but the rebounding will almost unequivocally come back when Ayton is on the floor. Most of Oubre's biggest rebounding games came when there was no DeAndre Ayton. And I think he had, what, like seven or eight double-digit rebounding games, and like six or seven of them came while Ayton was on the shelf. Regardless, really nice season for Kelly. Steals, blocks, threes, boards, scoring. It's a lot to like, not a lot to dislike. I can't pick it apart. It's a big hit. I think I would just look out for an overdraft. I think I would look out for an overdraft next year. Fourth highest ranked son, weird to refer to them in this single, is Ricky Rubio, who finished at number 61, was unilaterally panned for missing time, but played in the majority of their ball games. He played in 57 of their 65 games. I think you'd, you know, in a perfect world, you'd like to see one or two additional games, but 57 out of 65 to this point was right around league average. So I don't think you can beat him up about it. He was on pace to play in about 70 if they went a full 82. Maybe a game or two below average in that respect, but not far. And as a result, his totals ranking is pretty damn close to his per-game ranking. He's right around top 50 in totals, top 60-ish on a per-game basis. 13 points, 4.5 rebounds, 9 assists, 1.5 steals. Terrible shooting from the field, as per usual, but a really good foul shooting number that, honestly, you could even see it go a little bit higher. He's had seasons above 85%. I mean, he's, he's pretty close to his career average at 85.3 this year, but you go back and his final season in Minnesota, he actually shot 89% at the free throw line. You can't expect that. But it's just something to consider. Field goal percent was right around his career mark. His three-pointers were pretty damn close to what his sort of more recent career has been. Steals, good to see those back up to one and a half. And a lot of that was just being given the rope to play 30-plus minutes a game. Utah, he saw 29 minutes and 28 minutes in his two seasons. And he had the ball in his hands again. He looked like point guard Ricky Rubio instead of off-ball Ricky Rubio. Utah gave him this sort of false job. And I admit, I took a risk on Rubio in a couple of spots. I, I was being told, even by, at times, some fellow hoop ballers, hey, like, don't, don't do it, Dan. And I said, you know what? I think, I think this dude is going to see... Uh, I think Phoenix really wants him to be their on-floor leader. I don't think that they want it to be Booker right now. And it really seemed to, to play out that way. Rubio tied his career high in scoring at 13 and at .1. Turnovers were not that high. 2.7 to 9 assists. That's a really good ratio there. Better than 3 to 1. Uh, steals and blocks were still maybe a tiny bit down from the peak points of his time in Minnesota. But uh, the per 36s were kind of in line with the last couple of seasons. Just got more playing time. And with the assists jumping back up, everything else kind of fell into place. Him going from 6 assists to 9 assists a game... That's the jump from top 100 to top 60. The other stuff didn't really need to change. It was nice to get a little bit more on the defensive side, but that wasn't really the big thing. It was, is this guy going to get assists again? And the answer was a resounding yes, 
And he did it with Booker pretty much playing every single game he was in. But I think maybe one. There might have been one game that Rubio was in where Booker was out, two at most. I don't know what this means for next year, but I do know that there's a lesson to be taken away, and that is when a young team brings in a slightly older, and I mean, you know, with Rubio, call him slightly older is probably a little bit unfair. He's been in the NBA for almost a decade, uh, but he's born in 1990. Dude still isn't 30 years old. He came in young. So, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of wear and tear on him, but he's not an old guy, even though he's a veteran. They paid him big money, so you knew immediately this was a guy they had a job for. Sometimes you just have to kind of read the writing on the wall. Hey, this team wants this guy. He wants to be there. And more than anything, there was no one else competing for that job. Don't try to sell me on Elia Kobo. Nobody else. Does Rubio get overdrafted next year? No, I think he probably gets about accurately drafted. This is this is his job in Phoenix. And finally, Mikhail Bridges, who slowly, I mean really slowly, played his way into a much more robust fantasy game this season. He started out just piddling along and then had a wonderful stretch that started... Boy, geez. And we talked about it a little bit. I, I, I remember on this podcast saying, hey, he's had close to 30 minutes now for like four out of his last five games. We haven't really seen much coming of it. And then he had like a 16-minute game and a 12-minute game, and I thought, ah, never mind. You know, it's not quite there yet. It was right around the turn of the year. And then it really picked up. Right around January 10th, 30 minutes, 26, 32, 35, 40, 32, 33, 32, 26 he officially had the job at that point and then when Ubre went down he actually started to get take some shots that's a that's a pretty big difference maker for him four of his last five games he had double digit field goal attempts and that's the last piece of the puzzle with Bridges because you know he's going to be posting massive steals numbers he was at 1.5 steals 0.6 blocks this year the efficiency is going to be good Not as good as this year. I think this was probably about as high as it's going to get at 51.5% from the field, 85 at the free throw line. Not going to have any turnovers. But he only averaged six shots per game. So I want you guys to remember this number. He was number 75 in nine category leagues on a per-game basis, taking only six shots per game. So if that number even goes up to eight shots per game, he could almost be a top 50 guy. He could be a top 50 guy in eight shots per game because that's the difference between Bridges scoring nine points with four rebounds and 1.8 assists. Just having the ball in his hands a tiny bit more, a tiny bit more, he goes to something like 11 points, maybe 1.3 three-pointers and 2.2 assists. And then everything else stays the same. And those little upticks to get categories that are net negatives right now, a little bit closer to sort of like a net neutral, that's you, That's the jump. Because it's pretty easy to go from top 75 to top 65, top 60. Once you get beyond that mark, then it gets a little harder to move around very much. But it was pretty damn cool to see him slowly work his way into that big role. And I've got to think that they want to keep him moving that way 
as we move forward. I think it's quite conceivable that Mikhail Bridges is a guy that gets a lot of buzz going into draft season, so I'm a little bit worried about him in that regard because he was putting up numbers for about two months before the season was suspended. There's a weird little cutoff there where if a guy puts up good numbers for like three or four weeks, a lot of times people forget about it going into the following season, but when a guy does it for almost half the year, he's going to get a lot of name recognition. So I think you might see Bridges get drafted in that 75 to 80 range next season, and that makes me kind of nervous. If he falls a little bit beyond that, and we'll monitor this over the next four, five, six, seven, eight months, whenever the hell fantasy draft time comes around again next year. Uh, he's an interesting one. He's one to watch. Dario Saric was functional when both Aaron Baines and DeAndre Ayton were out, but overall his fantasy game is terrible. My God. And I listen, I don't want to pick on any one person in particular, but do you remember like two years ago, a lot of the big box sites were trying to ram the homie down our throats. Ugh. I just, I didn't really see it. I'm glad that he's, that, that everybody has cooled on him now. We've, we've, we're onto your game, Dario, and it's not fantasy friendly. Also, I didn't really like the nickname that much. Hmm. They're better ones. They're better ones. Uh, and then Aaron Baines was great when DeAndre Aiden was out as well, but I think you have to go into next season if you're plotting ahead here, assuming that Aiden's basically going to play. You can't just assume he's going to miss, you know, 60% of the season. Let's assume he doesn't take any performance-enhancing medications. Let's assume his ankle mostly stays healthy. Maybe they give him some rest days. But I think you plot for about a 70-game season for Aiden next year, if it's a full year. Sorry. Maybe we should talk about it this way. He plays in about seven-eighths of the season. Maybe a little bit less than that. Like uh, 85% of his team's games. So that's your son's recap from this season, and I think, to me, the lessons to learn, number one, are that you might actually get a little bit of value under under Aiton because those that had him, I think, felt pretty soured by the number of games he played this year. We'll see. I could be wrong about that. Devin Booker is probably going to be overdrafted in nine-category leagues. As per usual, Kelly Oubre probably going to get a little bit overdrafted uh, with a healthy, healthy DeAndre Ayton, you probably see his numbers take a very small step backwards as he moves a little bit farther away from the bucket, particularly on the defensive and rebounding side. Ricky Rubio, I think you, you sort of you get what you get. And then Mikhail Bridges is a really interesting one. Uh, just put him in your back pocket. Put him on the list of guys as we work our way through this team-by-team breakdown. Guys that Dan wants to monitor their ADP for next year. That's a really bad nickname. Guys that Dan wants to monitor for their ADP. We can come up with a better one, I'm sure. Call them the ADP trackers. Mikhail Bridges, first name on the list. The Dan Bespris ADP trackers for next year. Because I really don't know. He could get a ton of buzz and get wildly overdrafted. Or people could be like, meh, he scored nine points a game. What do I care? And I hope, I hope to all things holy that that is how most people feel. Because if he can get eight, nine shots a game, he could be a colossal fantasy value. So now we play the waiting game, and a long one. Tomorrow we'll continue our tour of the Pacific Division. Only two teams left to cover out west. Will it be the Kings? Will it be the Warriors? We're headed to the Bay Area. You'll have to tune in to find out. I'm Dan Bespris. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoopball presentation. 
Stay safe, everybody. Uh, start looking for good news over the next few days. We're starting to finally get close, at least in the places that put in those rules early. We're starting to get a little bit closer to being able to see something tangible. Give us a little hope here. Light at the end of the tunnel. Those of you that just put in your stuff early, hunker down, man. It's hard. This is hard, but we're all in this together. We'll talk to you tomorrow. So long, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.